0: welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're talking about Kevin Boyd Jr. He and his mother killed his father. If you like our show, please follow us and like our show as you listen.
1: And remember, while this show is often about kids, it's not for kids. It covers adult themes and sometimes language. Ring around the road. A pocket full of
0: posies Ashes, ashes We all fall down <laughs> 42-year-old Kevin Boyd Sr. was a local around Lake Orion, Michigan. He'd lived in the area for most of his life and in 1994 owned the local tool rental shop, Lake Orion Equipment Rental. And everybody liked him. In 1973, he met a lady named Lynn in a bar. She was quiet to his noisy. She was a free spirit and played in a band. In 1975, they married, adding Kevin Jr. to the family on December 15, 1977. For the next 12 years, Kevin worked hard to support his family and his thriving business while Lynn drank hard. She eventually checked herself into rehab and came out ready for love she left kevin senior for another woman and asked for a divorce around christmas of 1988 and like magic she was off building a new life with her new love if that had to hurt she finally gets better and she doesn't want to be with him anymore i know right 12 years of working hard and supporting your family and trying to take care of your wife for her to up and leave you as soon as she's been through rehab i know that's terrible yeah This was a huge blow for Kevin Sr., but he was kind of known as a happy-go-lucky guy, and he gave her the house and primary custody of Kevin Jr. without too much of a fight, moving himself into an apartment and keeping the business for himself. Well, that was nice. Yeah, he found a new love, Judy Kaminsky, and began to work on rebuilding his life. Unlike the quiet, edgy, broody Lynn, Judy was happy, positive. A lot of people called her a goody-two-shoes, but they said it was in a nice way. okay. And Kevin started to realize that life after divorce was going to be fine, maybe even better. Things were really wonderful between the two of them. So wonderful. He made her a business partner, and they took out a life insurance policy, naming each other as their beneficiaries so that if anything happened to one of them, the other could continue to run the business. Oh, that was smart. I thought so, too. But Kevin Jr. didn't have the chance to move on as easily. He was now splitting his life between two worlds, like most children of divorced parents do. As per the book Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison Justice Denied, he began to act out and found himself in trouble for something he did to a young girl when he was 11 years old. Ooh, that sounds terrible. And he was very young. But Kevin successfully completed his juvenile probation, and he didn't have any other brushes with the law. But in 1992, when he was 14, he was placed in a mental health center after trying to commit suicide.
1: Wow, that's quite a lot of trouble by 14.
0: Yes, he seems like he had quite a few troubles already. Lynn had approached Kevin Sr. at about this time, suggesting perhaps young Kevin would fare better living with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Kevin Sr. quickly agreed to take custody of his son, no problem. He did worry about where this would all take them in the long run, but all he wanted was to give his son the best so little Kevin could be happy and live a good life. At the age of 16, Kevin Jr. was an angry kid who was always ready for a fight. In fact, his fighting got him kicked out of several schools. Some people say five, some people say ten, I'm not sure how many it really was. Well, five or ten, either one is a lot of schools. It really is. He was described as struggling with life due to his smoking, drinking, and irresponsible behavior. He never took responsibility for his choices, and he looked to Kevin Sr. to clean up the consequences of his poor decisions. For example, he wrecked two cars, and both had been quickly replaced by Kevin Sr., who didn't want his son to go without. Okay, so maybe a little indulged. I would say a lot indulged. Yeah. But Kevin Sr. did hit the ground running with his new parenting responsibilities, working to create boundaries and expectations for his son who had never really had to deal with all of that before. Mm. And it was a lot, as could be expected. The summer between Kevin's sophomore and junior year of high school was a rough one. This boy hated having a curfew and living with rules and the expectations that he worked toward building a future for himself. He really resented it. He fought his dad every inch of the way. Geez, he thought, there has to be a better way. Kevin Jr. missed the days of freedom when he had total control of his 16-year-old life. He saw his dad succeeding at the rental shop, and it looked effortless. He decided any fool could do that job. He also saw that his dad always had a wad of cash. And Kevin Jr. thought his dad really had it easy.
1: I thought only a 16-year-old would think was believable. Running your own business is complicated. He probably had never talked to an accountant, though.
0: Well, he hadn't, and he didn't understand what his dad did all day. And his dad was pretty easygoing and kind of a work-hard-play-hard guy. So... Kevin thought that he wanted to be his dad. A lot of boys do. Right, and didn't understand any of the pressures that his dad was going through. And someone else didn't understand those pressures either. And that was Kevin Jr.'s mother. about all of his dad's attempt at parenting to his mom during visitations. And that's when he found out that she was kind of of like minds with him, but she had a plan, one that would set up his future and give him back his freedom. And he was in. Lynn had constructed a plan that would help her have financial freedom and control, as well as Kevin Jr., sort of. Kevin Jr. needed his mom, and his mom needed Kevin if this plan was going to work. Lynn needed access to Kevin Sr.'s house. She needed to know his habits, where and how he slept, things like that. Kevin Jr. now knew all of that because he lived there, and he had a key to the house. But she also needed something else, something she was careful not to share with Kevin Jr. She needed a fall guy.
1: Ah, so many moms do. It reminds me of the Mm Witties. It's all, oh, life will be perfect, life will be easy, until after the murder, when the son realizes that mom was making sure she was safe.
0: Right, and that's exactly what Lynn was doing too, as you'll see, because if things went sideways, Lynn wanted to be sure she wasn't going to prison for murder. So she'd done a little research, and she decided that if she just hit Kevin Sr., and Kevin Jr. stabbed him, she'd be home free. And little Kevin was a minor, so maybe he wouldn't be in but for a couple of years. Either way, she would be running that business, and she would be entitled to all of its profits. So Kevin Jr. was going to be her fall guy. That is a twisted plan. As usual. She also knew she needed someone who was strong to help with this murder. And she knew at 16 years old, Kevin was strong enough to pull it off. She and her son could sneak in murder Kevin Sr., ransack the place to make it look like a robbery, and collect that $500,000 life insurance policy while inheriting the thriving tool business. Piece of cake, they had this.
1: Well, how would they get the life insurance policy if it was to his new wife?
0: Well, Lynn wasn't aware of who the beneficiary was. She had assumed it was Kevin Jr., Oh. Lynn was thinking that as Kevin Jr.'s custodial parent, she would be able to use that money as she pleased, and she would have the business for ongoing income. Okay, so they didn't really know how the finances worked. Mm -mm. Or how Slayer laws work. Well, no one seems to understand that they are going to get caught, even if they do know the Slayer's Law. There was one complication. Oh? That Judy Kaminsky was always hanging around Kevin Sr.'s house. But she was planning a trip to Canada with her daughter, and Kevin Sr. wasn't going along. So Lynn and Kevin Jr. were smug, knowing something that Judy didn't know. When she kissed Kevin Sr. goodbye as she headed out the door, it was really goodbye. But they suspected this would throw suspicion on sweet little Judy. They thought this was very clever. They always think they're clever. I know, and they usually are not. (laughs) On August 5, 1994, both Lynn and Kevin Jr. put their plan in motion. They set out for a 10 o'clock rendezvous at Burger King. Kevin complicated it a little. He needed a ride. So he created a witness who we'll talk about later. With a knife and bat in hand, mother and son headed to Kevin Sr.'s house, where they peeked through the window until they saw Kevin Sr. fall asleep in his easy chair. Kevin Jr. used his key to quietly open the door, and they let themselves in. Using their bat and the knife, they ensured that Kevin Sr. experienced a bloody and violent death. Once that chore was out of the way, they got to work ransacking the house, stuffing a variety of his belongings into their vehicle. This had to look like a burglary if they were going to get away with it. That wasn't smart to take his things. Where are they going to put them? Well, you'll find out in just about a minute. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And wait, wasn't Kevin living with his dad? He was, but Kevin Jr. had orchestrated a big fight that night, and he left the house in a huff, went to his girlfriend's house, asked if he could spend the night, because Mm -hmm. he didn't want to go home to an angry father. Oh, okay. So he was establishing an alibi fairly early on. Yeah. Exhausted and pleased with themselves after all of their work, Lynn prepared Kevin Jr. for what was next. She coached him so he would know exactly what to say, and then she went home to her girlfriend, Julie Green, at around 4 a.m., explaining she had met up with Kevin Jr. to give him some money and then went for a drive and listened to music. Well, that's sort of the truth. She did think she was giving him some money in an odd sort of way. Mm Mm-hmm. When the couple learned of Kevin Sr.'s demise the next day, Lynn convinced Julie to provide her with an alibi, telling her one of Kevin Sr.'s business partners had surely done this, and without an alibi, he would never be caught. He had mob ties, you know. Did he really? I don't know. He never said he did. People like to think of mob ties, I think.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering if she came up with that on the spot. (laughs) Her girlfriend believed it, though, so.
0: Yeah, her girlfriend believed that she had been with Kevin and that it would look bad for her that she didn't really have a true alibi. Mm -hmm. So she agreed to go ahead and give her a solid alibi and say they'd been together all night. Okay. Well, Kevin had headed back to his girlfriend Andrea's house for some sleep. He knew he was in charge of the next important step. At about 10 that morning, a sobbing Kevin stood outside his father's apartment. He caught the attention of a passerby and frantically begged for help, saying his dad was hurt. When the passerby entered the Boyd apartment, he knew it was too late for Kevin Sr., and his heart went out to that son. No one could fathom how this poor boy felt. He told the police he'd had a fight with his dad the night before and had stayed the night at his girlfriend's house. Feeling better about everything, he'd come back to talk to his dad. He'd first gone to the shop and hadn't found his father there. Mm -hmm. and then had headed over to the house where he found him brutally murdered. Now, Kevin was dead, and his wallet was missing, and their answering machine was gone. But the police were confused because there was no sign of forced entry, and the brutality of the murder suggested it might actually be a crime of passion. The police investigators escorted Kevin Jr. to the precinct to see if they could start making sense out of this murder scene. Kevin told them he spent the night at Andrea's, about 20 minutes away. He hadn't been home when the murder robbery occurred. He said he tried to call his dad but got no answer, so he headed to the shop at about 9am to talk to him. No one had seen his dad at the shop, so like we said, he headed home and found his father lying dead on the floor. But then things got interesting for the police. Because Kevin Jr. immediately started to construct a possible scenario for this crime. Unprompted, he mentioned that his dad kept two guns in the home and some valuable coins. And all of that seemed to be missing.
1: That's not normal. You don't look for your dad's guns and coins when he's been murdered and find his
0: body. They asked Kevin Jr. Well, I guess he's no longer Jr. at this point. He's just Kevin and Kevin stated he had no idea who could have done this to his dad, and that he was most definitely not behind this crime.
1: Also suspicious, did Andrea back his alibi?
0: Indeed. The investigators talked with Andrea and her mother, and both said he'd been at their home all night. Her mom, who like all moms are confident they know what's going on when they often have no clue, insisted that the walls of their trailer were very thin. He couldn't possibly have left without her knowing, and when she had woken up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to check on him, she noted he was still there, snoozing away. Hmm. In the meantime, a musician, after a long night of drinking, playing sets, and dreaming of bedtime at Norman's Raw Bar and Grill, left for home at approximately 3 a.m., He was surprised to find a wallet and an answering machine, here's where they put Kevin's things, Hmm. in the bed of his pickup truck. He rifled through the wallet and found it belonged to a man named Kevin Boyd. The answering machine didn't have any cassettes in it.
1: I remember those days when there were
0: actual cassettes in an answering machine. Right. And it was gone. He thought that was super weird, but he headed home to sleep. Upon waking, he learned of the murder on the news and immediately called the police. He did not want to be implicated. The investigators were surprised to find the wallet was stuffed with cash and credit cards. If this were a burglary, those burglars were kind of inept. What they didn't notice, though, was the combination to the shop safe was not where it should be, tucked in Kevin's wallet. No one knew this combination except Kevin's trusted right-hand man, Don Lucarelli, the man that Lynn is going to implicate, Mm -hmm. and Kevin himself. Oh. On the day after the funeral, Kevin and his mother could be found at the courthouse working to claim control of the Lake Orion equipment rental. Lynn was excited to be taking over control of this shop. As Kevin's sole guardian, the shop would be hers until he came of age. But she knew it wasn't going to last that long.
1: I don't know if Kevin had really thought this one through. After two years of having the business and all the money, it may have turned sour for little Kevin when he reached legal age and she had to hand it over.
0: I don't think she had any intention of handing it over. I think that this was all for Lynn. Mm -hmm. And Kevin would end up not able to take control of the business yeah one way or the other right but kevin was convinced that he and his mother would be running this business and bringing in all kinds of money and finally they were going to get their happy kevin ran around bragging that he was now to be at the helm of a two million dollar business he was wrong it wasn't a two million dollar business And neither Lynn nor Kevin were prepared to perform that supposedly easy job of owning the shop. Suddenly, the business was in trouble, and money was disappearing. They'd gotten rid of Judy. How? Well, the business was Kevin's. They'd taken it over, so they just let her go. But Judy did inherit the $500,000 life insurance policy, much to their dismay.
1: Well, didn't they put the business in both of their names?
0: He had made her a partner in his business, oh. but he hadn't added her to ownership papers or anything. Oh, okay. So tempers were high and relationships began to splinter as the mismanaged shop quickly sank into insolvency. It took them a matter of months to destroy Kevin Sr.'s lifetime work. That's so sad. Mm hmm. And Kevin Sr.'s old friends shook their heads as they watched the business be destroyed. They were surprised to find that Lynn had mysteriously acquired the combination to the safe and was taking money from it at her whim.
1: Wow, that's a red flag.
0: Well, it's a major red flag where no one else had that combination, and it disappeared from his wallet. Mm Mm-hmm. But back to the investigation. When the police questioned Lynn about Kevin Sr.'s murder, she suggested they look into Kevin's work associate, Don Lucarelli. She told the investigators that Don had the mob connections, and of course, she mentioned that it might have been Judy. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. But Don checked out. He passed a lie detector test with flying colors. He told them it was probably Lynn who had killed him. She was money hungry. And Judy? Judy had a solid alibi. She'd been out of the country, remember? Both Lynn and Kevin Jr. had solid alibis, too. The police were stuck who had killed Kevin Sr. They kept working on the case, but they were stumped. Three short months later, in November, an attorney contacted the investigators requesting a meeting between them and Julie Grain. That must have been surprising. It was. It was Lynn's girlfriend, and they had no idea what she wanted to tell them. Secrets often poison relationships, and blackmail simply ruins them. And that is where Lynn and Julie's relationship went sideways. Directly after the murder, remember, Julie had agreed to be Lynn's alibi. But then in October, when pressed, Lynn confessed the murder to Julie, but told her that if she told anyone about it, she would find herself implicated. That's quite the threat. Mm -hmm. She told Julie that it felt kind of good, to hit kevin in the head wow Mm -hmm. after that lynn started becoming quite regretful that she had told julie anything at all and their relationship quickly deteriorated julie found herself sleeping with a gun under her pillow afraid to tell the police what she knew she was very afraid to wake up one day and find lynn and kevin jr by her bedside ready for a second act Yeah, she was sure she would be the next to die. Tired of it all, Julie decided to come clean with the police and admit that the alibi she had provided had been a lie. Julie confessed that Lynn had left the house on the evening of August 4th at approximately 10 p.m. to meet up with her son at Burger King. She hadn't returned home until somewhere between 3 and 4 in the morning. She said Lynn had told her Kevin Jr. needed to talk with her because he was struggling with a few things and he needed some money. Afterwards, she would begged Julie to keep quiet about that because it would look bad, and Lynn feared that she would be blamed for Kevin Sr.'s murder. Julie told them she'd slowly come to realize that Lynn was probably the murderer after all. When she confronted Lynn who admitted the whole thing in October, Julie had become so concerned that she started watching, and she found the stolen coins in their house, and she didn't want to be implicated, and she didn't want to die. Okay, that was probably the best move she could make. I think that was wise. A week later, Andrea's mother called the station. She was upset because Kevin had given her son-in-law Gary a gun and asked him to get rid of it. Gary had sold that gun to some drug dealer in Flint, Michigan. She was pretty sure it was that gun that was stolen during the commission of Kevin Sr.'s murder. The police loaded Gary into a police car and headed to Flint to find that murder weapon. They spent a full day asking around and trying to locate the drug dealer and the gun. They never found the drug dealer, but the gun was indeed made available to the police, mysteriously appearing in a random backyard. Mm, how fortuitous. hmm And they stopped looking for the drug dealer, so that worked out. Andrea, at this point, knew that she was in over her head, and her mom was mad. So she came forward and confessed that her alibi had also been false. Not only had Kevin snuck out of that house when her mother wasn't watching... She'd gone with him to give him a ride. She said they'd gone to Burger King, where he'd hopped out of the car and gone to meet up with his mother.
1: So she knew exactly where he was.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. After her confession, Andrea returned home with her mother to begin serving her life term, restriction, (laughs) because parents don't take it very well when kids lie to them and sneak out.
1: Well, can you imagine thinking your kid's safe
0: at home and she's running around taking someone off to commit murder? I know. So when your mother tells you not to sneak out of the house with a boy because he'll always bring you trouble, you should really believe her. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Lynn had apparently heard that her perfect murder was unraveling. So she pulled the trigger for plan B. Blame the boy? Mmm, not yet. Oh. In December, Lynn called the police, telling them she wanted to confess to sort of killing her husband. She told them she'd gone to his home at the behest of her current girlfriend, Julie, who mysteriously wanted him dead. Okay. She told them that Kevin's only involvement was giving them the key so they could get in easily. Okay. Lynn had hoped to retaliate since it was apparent that Julie had ratted her out. And she wanted to add a little bit of doubt to the story. It was pretty clear that Lynn had convinced herself that only the person who did the stabbing in this case would be convicted of murder in the first degree. Because, you know, hitting someone with a baseball bat wasn't murdering them like stabbing them would be. It can be. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you're there committing the murder, even if you aren't hitting or stabbing them, it's still murder. Yeah, especially if you've planned it in advance. Right. She wasn't very good with the law. No. (laughs) She also figured that dumping both the motive and the planning on Julie would also somewhat protect her in the role of the murder. In a recorded conversation that aired on Snapped, Lynn told the investigators that she didn't want to do it, that her girlfriend Julie was the mastermind and had pushed her into participating. Lynn told the investigators... She'd hit him twice with a bat. That was it. But that Julie had been the one who stabbed him 20 some odd times. But in her narrative, she kept referring to Julie as he. And the police suspected that Lynn had simply replaced Kevin's name with Julie's name in her quest for revenge, but kept forgetting to replace the pronouns properly in her narrative.
1: <laughs> That's kind of a big mistake, <laughs> a little. But it looks like Kevin's mom had thought this through. Lynn was really sure she wouldn't get convicted as long as she only hit him with a bat. And maybe she was hoping for a second degree by denying that she'd been planning for
0: the murder. I think that's exactly what she was doing. Well, they pulled Kevin back in for yet another interrogation. An angry, combative Kevin insisted they had the wrong guy that the guy they were looking for wasn't actually a guy at all. It was Julie. Julie killed him. His mother had only hit him. After letting him blather on and on regarding his innocence, the detectives quietly pulled out the gun he'd tried to get rid of. And Kevin was suddenly silent and sullen. The detective quietly asked, Kevin, what type of person would do this to somebody like your father? Kevin put his head down and said, you're looking at him. And that was the beginning of Kevin's confession. So what happened next?
1: Well, now the police had motive. They knew who the bad actors were and who they'd planned to blame. But they didn't have the murder weapon. Okay, I need to correct myself a little. They did have the bat. It was Kevin's bat. But the knife was missing. They knew by the shape of Kevin Sr.'s wounds that it was some kind of hunting knife. Hmm. The murder weapon was very important to this case. In order to get a conviction, the district attorney needs to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. With both Lynn and Kevin claiming Julie had stabbed Kevin Sr., They needed to amass enough evidence to remove all doubt that Julie had anything to do with it. And they couldn't find that murder weapon anywhere.
0: I know they say that all the time, but it's kind of weird. It's not like having the knife changes anything, does it? It depends. It might,
1: and they don't know until they find it. But it would be really nice to find out, because sometimes the knife will be attached to the case in an incriminating way. Like what? Um, Well, they can look at the ownership of the knife, fingerprints left on the knife, where it's found, like if it's under someone's bed, Mm -hmm. DNA, how it was concealed. There are a lot of different ways for a murder weapon to help tell the story.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Do they find it? Yes, they do. Yay. Where? Guess. Uh, Um, not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I know. They found it at Lynn's house. Well, no. They're not that silly. Um, did they find it thrown in a field? Nope. Hmm. How about in Julie's drawer? That's where I would have put it.
1: That would have been a good place to put it. But remember,
0: Lynn and Kevin's downfall
1: always comes through their own conduct.
0: Mm. So or, I'm
1: wrong. In the nicest possible way. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Remember how they thought it would be so easy to run that rental shop and how they were so excited to have access to all the profits from the shop?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, they ran the store to the ground in a matter of months. Kevin Sr. had been a hardworking, savvy businessman, but Kevin Jr. and Lynn were not. They knew how to spend money, but they had no clue regarding how to make it. The store ended up failing very quickly, and the items in it were auctioned off in anticipation of a new owner taking
0: over. Oh, that's sad.
1: It is sad, and very poor management, and reveals another error in their attempt to hide the crime. Mm -hmm. As they moved the last item out of the shop, an air compressor, they discovered
0: a knife wrapped in one of Kevin Jr.'s t-shirts. What? That is... Mind-blowing. Okay, now I see why they want to find the murder weapon.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can be very revealing just where it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin's senior sister, Lynette Heidi, said, It was like my brother reached out and shook it out of there. (laughs) But now they were ready for trial.
0: That must have made that sister, Lynette Heidi, very happy. Mm, Kind of. It didn't seem to
1: feel like a huge victory for her or any other family member. Miss Heidi was interviewed on Oxygen's program, Snapped, said it best. It sure wakes you up to, it'll never happen to me. It makes you have a little more compassion for all that you hear on the news. That behind all these victims, there are families. That I can honestly say I never thought about, and never gave the family a second thought. You don't think anything about the people who are left behind, and just how
0: surreal it is. You know, we talk about that quite often. I think the families have a very tough go of it after a family member is murdered. They're not only missing the person that was murdered, but they're missing the family member who committed the murder.
1: Mm-hmm. And your whole worldview is kind of shattered. Like you said, it'll never happen to me. Your sense of safety in the world is
0: gone. Yeah. It would be a lot like living in a Salvador Dali picture, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So at trial... Lynn said that Kevin acted alone in the murder of his father. Her story about going to Kevin's seniors with Julie and only helping by hitting him had completely vanished into thin air. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sure that was her attorney's doing, because it was a terrible story. It was. Now, Lynn was claiming she hadn't known about the murder plans, hadn't been anywhere near Kevin's house on that fateful night. She'd had nothing to do with it. Oh, that's kind of interesting. It's quite the turn, right? Mm Mm-hmm. She said she had generously taken the fall for Kevin Jr. at first because she was such a good mom, but had changed her mind. Oh. The jury didn't buy it. Good. Lynn was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. And that is where she is today, still imprisoned. Uh. At trial, Kevin claimed he simply gave the keys to his mom, and it was she and Julie who had murdered his father. But those taped interviews negated his claims at trial he was also found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole this was vacated after the 2012 miller v alabama ruling which you know all about if you listen to our last episode life after life and he was resentenced to 25 years to life meaning he was eligible for parole if he had been able to show the prison that he was adequately rehabilitated He was paroled in January of 2020.
0: Wow. Do you think he should have been paroled that early? It's hard to say.
1: Um, We know something about his background. We know that he had committed some kind of offense against a young girl when he was 11. So he had some previous criminality. But we also have to weigh the influence of his mother in this murder and his youth. And ultimately, the people who know him best would be the people on the parole board. They know a lot better than we do if he was ready.
0: That's true. I know they look at his prison record. Did he do well in prison?
1: hmm He did very well in prison. And hopefully he got the structure he needed
0: to straighten out. It seems like these children who are mentored into murder by a parental predator do really well in prison. And I don't know if life in prison is warranted in those cases. I, I don't think that was really considered when they decided on life without parole.
1: Yeah, I think that they need to take into account the influence that they were under. Mm -hmm. Because a parent can be a big influence on their child. Hopefully for good, but in some cases, not so much. That's true. One thing that's a little concerning, though, is that he doesn't seem to have taken responsibility for the murder. To this day, he continues to claim that it wasn't really him. It was Julie.
0: Really? Even with all of the evidence in? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And even after having been convicted and served time. So I'm not sure that he's fully accepted responsibility.
0: Hmm. That is really a concern. But hopefully he has grown into a man who won't be the child that he was when he murdered his father.
1: Hopefully. And he says, I am not a reflection of who I used to be. So hopefully he's moving on and going to be different now.
0: Good. I hope that that's what has happened with him.
1: I hope so, too. But... That's all we have on him, and
0: it's time to thank a few people. So we'd like to thank Snapped, Season 28, Episode 22 by Oxygen. If you have a chance to watch it, I believe we watched it on Amazon Prime. It's really an interesting show. Mm -hmm. We also would like to thank the Detroit Free Press, Murderpedia, the AP News, and the book Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison, Justice Denied. They were all very informational, and we used them to collect both the information and the pictures that we used for this story. And we'd also like to give a special thanks to Jade Brown. And, of course, you, our listeners.
1: If you would like to contribute to our show, you can find us on Patreon. Tax-deductible donations begin as low as $10 a month, and we will shower you with gratitude should you choose to lend us your support. If you prefer to make a one-time donation please visit our website at Parasite.org. And again, all the gratitude you can hold will be coming your way. If you'd like to reach out to us with feedback or ideas, you can find us at ParasitePodcast at Parasite.org or on Facebook and Twitter.
0: And please remember to like and follow our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. In a couple of weeks, we are going to be at CrimeCon in Las Vegas. If you're going to be there, reach out to us and maybe we can meet up. This has been the Parasite Podcast. And remember,
1: always sleep with one eye open.
0: Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.